Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield account. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. Markets shrug off higher consumer prices. The economy is in the process of rebounding. Will the Federal Reserve have its own digital currency? The financial stories that shape our world. Many people think the yields are just going to keep marching up. We have more spending coming out of Congress. One of the big questions I think on investors' minds, inflation. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Wells Fargo CEO, Charlie Sharp. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston. From Bloomberg Radio. A mega media deal, a cryptocurrency crash, and adjusting to a world without COVID restrictions, leaving investors to sort out the signal from the noise. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. There was some true drama this week and more than a little bit of excitement as well. But in the end, the markets came out of the week not all that much different from where they started, with the S&P 500 down just a tad and the NASDAQ up just a tad. Well, the 10-year yield lost less than a basis point. But what was not calm this week was Bitcoin. It plunged from a high of $44,000 at the beginning of the week down to $35,000 on Friday. But in between, it went all the way down to $30,000, all the way up to $42,000. And as I say, it ended up at $35,000 at the end of the week. It was all exciting to watch, but did it signify much beyond the four corners of crypto land? For that, we turn to our regular contributor, Jillian Tett of the Financial Times, where she is chair of the editorial board and editor-at-large U.S. Jillian, great to have you, particularly because you've really studied crypto so carefully. Does it have any significance beyond the four corners of crypto land? Well, here's the good news. It doesn't have that much significance because at the end of the day, it still is only a $2 trillion market, and that is not enough to make it truly systemic. Um, And we have seen dramatic swings in cryptocurrencies before. It's worth remembering that you don't have market makers in this sector. So, of course, that tends to make it a lot more volatile than most of the other types of assets like equities that investors may be looking at. But the bad news is that this does show that the foundations of cryptocurrency are a lot shakier than many of the enthusiasts have actually um, factored in before. There's a lot of opacity. There's a lot of dependency on what stance the regulators are going to take. And we still don't really know what stance that's going to be. And the other point to make, which is really important, 
is that all of this is coming as not only Wall Street banks, but big asset managers like Fidelity start to move into this land. And of course, this week, the other bit of really big news was that the Federal Reserve, along with other central banks, is looking at whether it could create a digital currency of its own. So let's talk about that. Are the regulators more or less declaring a form of war on cryptocurrency? I mean, because you had, as you said, the Jay Powell, the chairman of the Fed, coming out saying, we're going to spend the summer studying this. We're going to come up with a report exactly what we want to do on digital currency. And then you had both the PBOC saying, don't you dare trade in this stuff, buy stuff with it in China. And you also had the state council saying, don't even mine it over here. It sounds like the regulators are starting to get their dander up. Well, there's two or three things going on here. On the one hand, there's a regulator saying, actually, the underlying technology of what's going on here, the blockchain, is actually potentially very useful. But if that is going to be useful, we actually want to try and control it some way and ensure that money is still tethered to a central bank. And one of the biggest risks to Bitcoin and other types of tokens going forward is that if the central banks ever get serious about creating their own digital currency, they could essentially squeeze out a lot of these bottom-up innovations. At the same time, you're seeing regulators saying, well, we're getting concerned about the tax implications of all this, and the IRS indicated that it's going to start treating Bitcoin like any other asset and demanding a lot more disclosure, reporting, and, of course, payment of taxes. And again, it's unclear whether people have factored that in or not. And then last but not least, you have the regulators who are trying to work out how they're going to control, shape, monitor, define this. Um, China said they're going to stop their banks essentially dealing with this. But uh, and other jurisdictions will be doing the same. Turkey came in with very strong rules quite recently, too. But at the heart of the regulatory dilemma is a debate going on amongst regulators about, is this a currency, in which case someone like the Fed should be involved? Is it a security, in which case someone like the SEC should be involved? Or is it actually a commodity, a store of value, more like gold, in which case maybe the CFTC should be involved? And right now the answer is not clear, so there's a lot of uncertainty swirling around the whole crypto space. And maybe, Jillian, that's another way of asking the question that I have, which is, what role, if any, does this play in the larger financial system? I mean, right now, given the volatility, you can't really buy things. You can't denominate prices in this, as Elon Musk apparently has concluded with Tesla. It's not really investable, given the, the, the volatility. So what role, if there is a role in the larger financial plan, does it serve? Well, if there were any CFOs who were thinking of following Tesla and making it part of their um, portfolio strategy, right now they certainly are not going to do that given how volatile it is. So we know it's not a stable short-term um, store of value. We know it's not a very good payment system at all because if it's going up and down in price, why would you use it to pay for anything? So it's probably best considered more like a speculative type of security right now, which, you know, is not the end of the world. Um, but that's certainly the way that probably investors should be seeing it if they are looking at it at the moment. But there's one other very important thing to point out as well, which is that when Elon Musk came out and expressed reservations about Bitcoin recently, he did so for environmental reasons. That shouldn't be a surprise to anyone who's been in this space. We at the Financial Times have written a lot about this. Um, and in fact, one of our top performing stories this week was a deep dive into the environmental implications of Bitcoin. There's a lot of activity right now in the fintech world um, and in environmental groups trying to see if they can find a green Bitcoin, which doesn't consume quite so much energy, or rather a green cryptocurrency that isn't Bitcoin, because probably the answer is going to lie in something other than Bitcoin. But again, as people are saying, well, I can see down the tracks there could be an investor revolt against dirty Bitcoin and people flooding to other newer currencies, which are less environmentally yeah. damaging 
that's creating volatility too. Yeah, it leaves us to wonder why Elon Musk, who's clearly very bright, didn't read the notes about the, the green issue, because as you say, he should it's have been around for a while. Time, because Thank in you. the FTA, we've written about it so many times, <laughs> yes. you know, but Exactly, exactly. Thank you so much to Jillian Tett of the Financial Times for joining us here on Wall Street Week. Coming up, remaking the media world again, this time for streaming. We talk with Discovery President David Zasloff about why he thinks this will give him the winning hand. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Game of Thrones and 90 Day Fiancé are joining a new blended family. For years, Wall Street has called on AT&T to give up on its media dreams and get more focused on 5G. This week, it succumbed, announcing that CNN and HBO and its Warner Media division will leave the telecommunications giant and join forces with Discovery, home of the Food Network and TLC. Here's Chris Pultz of Kellner Capital. And AT&T, in order to roll out their 5G platform, needs a lot of cash. So this is a great way for them to monetize the, the Time Warner assets, probably at a loss, but a way to get some cash back to continue their rollout. The deal reverses the one in which AT&T paid $81 billion to buy Time Warner, one in which it had to fight off a challenge from the Justice Department, and it comes after AT&T already beat a retreat from its direct TV business, selling 30% to TPG. In contrast, David Zasloff has been steadily accumulating media heft, including with Discovery's 2018 purchase of Scripps Networks. It is a clear concession of defeat for AT&T. It just didn't work. Um, They paid too much. That's Craig Moffat of Moffat Nathanson. The big question is what this will mean for the new media behemoth as it competes for streaming business against the likes of Disney and Netflix. Both Discovery and AT&T have their own streaming platforms, but didn't say whether HBO Max and the newly launched Discovery Plus would be folded together. I think HBO Max has potential to create more value, but AT&T couldn't wait. So I think this this is a really good outcome for Discovery. That's Michael Nathanson, also of Moffat Nathanson. And the media dance is not over yet. Amazon is looking to buy MGM, whose library includes the Rocky and the James Bond franchises. The reported acquisition talks signal Amazon's focus on entertainment. And analysts speculate whether others like Comcast and Viacom can be far behind. Here's Robert Perfusik of Jones Day. The M&A market has never been more 
active than it is right now. Um, just uh, talk to anyone in the space, and I think they would say that. We talked with the two men who started it all this week. Discovery CEO David Zasloff and AT&T CEO John Stankey. And for both of them, it is setting off on a very new course, quite different from the one they've been on. For David Zasloff, it's giving up the relatively low-cost, unscripted programming he's embraced over the years and plunging ahead into something very different. And for John Stankey, it's turning his back on an AT&T dream to move into the media world. Well, first, in many ways, we're really in the same business. We're both global IP companies. And uh, we've been on a mission to aggregate more compelling stories and characters and IP in the U.S., which is why we did the Scripps deal with HG and food and why we got into business with Oprah and Chip and Joe. And so, you know, even though our content may be less expensive, we still aggregate to about 20 to 25 percent of viewership, depending on any given night in the U.S. And outside the U.S., we're the leader in sports in Europe with Eurosport, and we have free-to-air channels in a number of markets where we're like NBC or CBS, as well as being in the uh, in the cable nonfiction business. But uh, John and I are really aligned in strategically trying to get to scale above the globe to have to be a meaningful scaled competitor. And in order to do that, you need great content that people love. And uh, one of the things that we looked at, we launched Discovery Plus, you know, very strong, great product, um, great reviews and app and app ratings. Um, and people are using the product for three hours a day. And, uh, but we looked at what John has, King Kong, Godzilla, uh, the incredible brand of, of HBO, Sex in the City, Game of Thrones, Superman, Batman. And we, we started to think about it as a combustible combination. You got some incredible IP that people will uh, pay for before they'll pay for dinner. And then we have a bigger library than Netflix with content that people love, whether it's Oprah or Chip and Joe or Food Network or HG or the BBC content, Planet Earth. And so I think this is just a, a way that kind of assures that Warner, uh, probably the top of the pyramid in, in, in quality IP and quality talent that's loved all around the world, together with the content that we have, that where we are already the largest global media company, we have more global IP than anyone else. And when we come together, uh, we think it just, it makes us a, uh, a real formidable global IP business to compete with the best in the business. So, John, David says that you're at least in the same sort of business, even if there are different ends of the business. But you've also had something of a change of heart here. There was a major strategic decision made to really move into the media business as a telephone company. And now you're really reversing that. You're going to go back to your roots, the telephone company. Let me understand, looking back at it now, was the strategy wrong or did something change in between? Because let's be frank, you're leaving some money on the table. There is some value being destroyed. Well, I, I probably dispute whether or not there's value being destroyed. I'd actually say that we've managed to increase the value of the assets we bought by maybe about 30%. If you look at the cash we've taken out of the business, the assets we sold, and the effective value of this transaction and, and some reasonable assumptions that once it trades as to how it's uh, it's going to trade at a multiple. John, I just want to make sure I understand that. I think you bought it at $85 billion. This is $43 billion. Are you saying you got that difference out in well, cash? Well, we're getting $43 billion in cash, and we're getting 71% of the equity of the new, the new business. Uh, so <laughs> there's two parts to that. And uh, the, the 
point of view that I think I'd have on this is the team's done a remarkable job of pivoting the asset to be effective in the direct-to-consumer world. And that's really the value that I think David and the rest of the industry see it right now. Now, what changed uh, since we went into this was originally a point of view that this would help our connectivity business. And, and indeed it has, it's lower churn, it's helped us on customer acquisition on things like selling more broadband connections, and it's raised customer satisfaction on those products. But in 2016, I don't think we had a clear picture of what the global opportunity was going to be in direct to consumer and whether or not that was going to be essential to playing in that space. And it's become clear that as David just described, it's in fact going to be global and the market opportunity for that, the value creation opportunity is significant. It's so much more significant than the value that we get back into our connectivity business domestically in the United States to drive down churn and improve our customer acquisition that I can't in good conscience not allow these assets to develop to their full potential and to give it the kind of exposure in the market that it needs to get the kind of multiple on it that we just talked about that will increase value that the share owners of AT&T at 71% will carry forward. This is the right move at this time to actually make that happen given the changes in the environment. That was Discovery CEO David Zasloff and AT&T CEO John Stanky. Coming up, pre-pandemic life is within reach for vaccinated Americans, but Dr. Anthony Fauci says that a sustained sense of normalcy will depend on a global effort. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Over the last 15 months, the biggest fundamental of all is the path of the coronavirus and what it means for the economy. Through it all, Dr. Anthony Fauci has been our guide. And so we asked President Biden's chief medical advisor where we are and whether it's safe to open up our economy fully before everyone is vaccinated. Well, David, the more and more people that we get vaccinated, the less and less likely there's going to be another wave. The wild card, positive wild card we have now that we did not have when we experienced the three big surges that our country has experienced. The most difficult one was at the end of the fall and early winter as we transitioned from 2020 to 2021, where we went up to a, a terribly high level of 300,000 cases a day and 3,000 deaths. We are now coming down in a rather significant manner that we've dropped cases from 60,000 a day to down to 50, 40, and now we're in the 30s, which is really good news. We don't want to declare victory prematurely, but if we can get the 70% of adults vaccinated with at least one dose by the 4th of July, the way the president has set the goal, I think the chances of there being a surge or a rebound is extremely low. That's the reason why we want to continue to get people vaccinated and even get to that somewhat recalcitrant group that really doesn't want to get vaccinated because the, the more and more we get, the higher the percentage, the less likely there'll be a problem. And that would mean we could safely get back to normal, get the economy back to where we want it, get people enjoying things that they have not had the opportunity to enjoy now for well over a year. So we're going in that direction, but we've got to keep putting on the pressure, as it were, 
to continue to get people vaccinated. Let's talk about the role of social distancing, mask wearing, some of the guidelines we had in getting those numbers back down in the United States as opposed to the vaccines. To what extent was it the social distancing, the masks? And let's be honest, there's some confusion around the country right now about masks. Yeah, I, I think the confusion is, and, and we've been discussing this over the past couple of days, uh, David, is an understandable confusion. The As the data accumulated as to the effectiveness, the real world effectiveness in vaccines in protecting you from getting infected, and even if you get a breakthrough infected, of preventing you from spreading it to anyone else. There was strong suggestions that that was the case. Over the last several weeks to a month, the data have become very clear that if you're fully vaccinated and an otherwise healthy person, the chances of your getting infected is remarkably low, really quite low. It's good against the variants, number two. And number three, even if you do get a breakthrough infected, the level of virus in your nasopharynx would be low enough that it is extremely unlikely that you would infect anyone else. Having said that and documenting that, the CDC came out with guidance a few days ago last week and said, if you are fully vaccinated, you should feel safe that you can go without a mask, not only outdoors, but also indoors. That was directed specifically at people who were fully vaccinated. The problem is, David, that what happened is that people interpreted that that was a signal to say that you don't need masks anymore, which absolutely is not the case because for people who are not vaccinated and still vulnerable and susceptible to infection, that you still have to follow the CDC guidelines that have not at all changed for that group. And that's where the confusion is. It replies only to people who are fully vaccinated. So, Doctor, clearly it applies only to those fully vaccinated and those of us who are fully vaccinated feel privileged to have that. But we don't know who's fully vaccinated. So if I'm running a business, whether it's a small retail store or it's a huge company, I don't necessarily know who's vaccinated and who's not. How do I figure out which is which? Well, well, David, you just hit the nail right on the head of what the issue is. Since we are not centrally requiring proof of vaccinations, namely from the federal government on down. You gave an example, which is a perfect example of what we're facing. So let's say I'm an owner of an establishment, whatever that establishment is. And I am aware of the CDC guidelines saying that if people who are vaccinated can feel safe outdoors and indoors without a mask, what I don't know is coming into my establishment, who's vaccinated and who's not, which means you don't know who's infected and who's not, and what the risk of transmitting an infection within my establishment. And it's for that reason why there are some establishment owners and people responsible for the establishment who are saying, full understanding the CDC guidelines, if you wanna come into my establishment, you have to wear a mask. And that's where some of the confusion is, David, because you're saying, wait a minute, the CDC is saying that if you're vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask, and now you're telling me I have to wear a mask if I come into your... That's something that needs to be cleared up for sure. That was President Biden's chief medical advisor, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Coming up, we wrap up the week as always with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. 
Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We're going to wrap up the week as we always do with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, I want to get to the Summers Inflation Watch we premiered last week. But before we do that, we got to talk about crypto for a moment or two because, boy, Bitcoin took us on a wild ride this week. And, and let me ask the first and most basic question. Does it matter? I mean, you have said on this program you think uh, cryptocurrency is here to stay. Why is it here to stay and what does it do for us? Look, does it matter to the overall economy? Does it matter to the growth of standard of livings of uh, Americans? Is it as important an issue as it is an issue that attracts media attention? No to all of those questions. Is there a desire and is there a longstanding human desire to hold an asset that feels separate and apart from the day-to-day workings of governments? I think the answer to that question history shows is yes. I think gold has been the primary asset of that kind for a long time. And I think that crypto has a chance of becoming an agreed form that people who are looking for safety hold wealth uh, in. So my guess is that crypto is here to stay and probably here to stay as a kind of digital gold. And if you imagine that crypto became half or even a third of the total value of the non-use value of gold, that would be a substantial appreciation from uh, current levels. And that's why I think there's a good prospect uh, that crypto will be part of the system uh, for quite a while uh, to come. But is crypto going to usher in some kind of libertarian paradise? Are most of us going to be making most of our payments using uh, Bitcoin or some other uh, crypto asset? I rather doubt it. Is this going to be something fundamental for commerce on the internet, it may be an important part of commerce on uh, the internet. Uh, That's how I would uh, think about it. 
Another thing that happened this week before we get to inflation as such is Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, went into the belly of the beast, if I could put it that way, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and said, you should be in favor of our plan that really has us taxing corporations more. And that's because you're actually going to make more money because of the overall investments we're making. You have a fascinating point about that because we've also heard from President Biden. He's trying to redistribute some of the wealth. You can't have it both ways, can you? I think the most important thing to say is that the administration is in broadly the right direction on corporate taxation. Corporations can afford to pay more. And instead of having a race to the bottom globally, we should be cooperating to make sure that people can't use havens to avoid uh, taxes. Secretary Yellen is right in the direction of her policy. Secretary Yellen is right. And I, I found it a powerful speech in her emphasis on there's a lot more that government needs to do uh, in our society and that fundamentally we need to rebalance a bit towards uh, public investment and maybe even more than a bit given the magnitude of climate and health and inequality challenges. I don't, in all honesty, think that the claim that somehow an increase in corporate taxes will be good for corporate profits is a valid uh, claim. And I was surprised and a little disappointed uh, to see uh, that uh, claim made. But the argument that it was supporting is, I think, a valid and strong uh, argument. And uh, that's probably uh where the focus should be. Let me make a broader point, or really a question for you, Larry, here. We have seen in recent years an increase in concentration uh, in U.S. corporations, larger and larger corporations, larger and larger market shares, and yes, much, much larger profitability rates. As a matter of economics, not morality, economics, is that good or bad or neutral for the economy? You know, David, it depends. If a company comes to have lots of market power because it gets better and better at producing and it can produce at lower and lower costs. That's good. That's what we call uh, progress. That's what Henry Ford did with automobiles a long time ago. If a company is buying up its rivals, if a company is creating a fear that anyone who tries to innovate, they'll just get crushed, copied and crushed. That's really terrible for progress in the economy. And so I don't think you can generalize. I certainly share the view that we certainly haven't been making mistakes of too too much antitrust policy in the United States over the last generation. And I think we can usefully look at stepped up antitrust policies in some cases. But I don't agree with those who, be, who seem to be suggesting, and I may be misreading some of the things that uh, some of the people uh, providing commentary say, if they're saying that whenever a company gets a larger market share and more profits, that's a problem that the government should go after, I think that's badly wrong. That's a situation the government should look at to see whether the competitive practices have been fair. Uh, Larry, let's get to the summer's uh, inflation watch, as we call it here. Uh, This is something you've been talking about right from the very beginning of President Biden's administration, a concern that we might be pumping too much money in the economy. What's happened in the last week on that front from your perspective? What are you looking at? You know, market judgments have stayed about constant. I think if you look at the run of commentary, 
There's a greater awareness of it. Uh, I read the Fed as being at the fringes, at the edges of uh, growing awareness. Uh, I don't think the Fed is projecting in a way that reflects the potential seriousness of the problem. And I think that, you know, stopping and slowing an inflationary economy's inflation is a lot like bringing a car to a stop. It's going to be much more comfortable if you start early and gently than if you wait until the last possible moment. And so I am concerned that with everything that's uh, going on, the economy may be a bit charging towards uh, toward towards a wall. So I, but I would say I'm not lots more concerned or lots less concerned than I was a week ago. And we're starting to hear from at least some of the Fed members uh, some concern. You heard from, for example, Kaplan this week saying it's time to start easing our foot off the accelerator so we don't have to jump too hard on the brake if that time comes. But one of my questions is, is it, is it more than just they're sort of not paying attention, they're not acting quickly enough, or could they be contributing to the problem through expectations? By signaling so strongly they're not going to actually taper, does that potentially actually feed the beast of inflation? Look, I think it's a broad point. You have the Fed saying that it's a whole new world and we're a whole new Fed. You have the government saying it's a whole new type of policy back to the great society or the new deal. Well, if you tell people it's a new world, they're probably going to be more reluctant to form expectations based on the old world. And so I don't understand how people can argue both that expectations are fundamentally anchored and that it's a new world. And so I think a little bit more emphasis on continuity would be a good idea. I think the Fed needs to recognize uh, that it needs to be looking forward and driving the car through the windshield rather than uh, the side windows. Looking at the side windows might have been fine a year or so, a year ago or two years ago when they put forward their framework. But when you've got a government that's committing itself to 15% of GDP and fiscal stimulus, when the economy has a record level of job vacancies, that's not a time when you can steer the economy uh, through the side window. So, Larry, you've been watching Fed so so closely for so many years. Just in the final 10 or 15 seconds here, do you think they're starting to change their direction? I hope so. Thank you so much to our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard, for that review of the week. Finally, one more thought. Would you like some pepperoni and extra cheese with your Bitcoin? The friends and foes of Bitcoin had another week of slugging it out with the friends of the currency, or whatever it is, sticking to their guns. And people like Kathy Wood of ARK predicting it will go to $500,000, even as it slid 30% in a single morning. We go through soul-searching times like this and, and scrape the models, and yes, our conviction is as high. But there are those who say we're missing the whole story, that it's not the crypto that matters, but the blockchain on which it's built, and what that could make possible. Everything from letting people lend and borrow without the need for a pesky bank to replacing the SWIFT payment system altogether. But now there's a new entrant into the race for creative uses of crypto, the pizza franchise. The Financial Times this week tells the story of Bitcoin Pizza, 
a creation of Anthony Pomp Pompliano, a crypto influencer and tech investor who's decided to merge two things he loves, Bitcoin and pizza. The pizza is real and is sourced from your local pizzeria, with 100% of the profits going to something called the Human Rights Foundation Bitcoin Developers Fund, which, according to its website, is raising money to support open source software developers working to strengthen Bitcoin so it can be used by human rights activists all around the world. And no, I am not making this up. But there is one catch. You may be able to get your pizza. It may help fund Bitcoin developers trying to save the world. But the one thing you can't do is pay for that pizza using Bitcoin. No, when it comes to getting pizza, Bitcoin pizza only takes dollars. Though you can use your credit card if you want. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.